Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Tuesday, August the 29th, 2023. It is currently 10.51 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where, in a, in a way, is this a studio now or is this a track? Is this like a running track where, you, where we all are meeting up and we're going to go run? But we're not really running around a track. That's just going in circles. We're running kind of a, is this the Boston Marathon? Maybe I should tell you I'm coming to you live from the Boston Marathon or the New York City Marathon or because what we're actually doing is trying to run a marathon. And even though I'm sitting in the studio, I'm trying to picture in my mind that I'm running an actual marathon. I think that would be better running a marathon through a city than just running in circles on a track. I don't know which, which works best for you. I don't know. I hate running, but even though I hate running, that's, this is the illustration that I've decided to use. So I'm just going to keep using it until everyone has grown tired of it. Maybe by the time you've grown tired of the illustration, we will be done. But let me remind you, if for some reason you have forgotten, we are trying to finish up the book of Jeremiah by the end of August because we have been involved in a summer study of the book of Jeremiah. The original goal was to always finish by the end of August. Now, to be fair, we were supposed to finish the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. Clearly, we have fallen very, 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 very short in that goal, but we are going to finish the book of Jeremiah. We are going to accomplish that one way or the other. We have, today is the 29th. Yes, today is the 29th. I just said it a minute ago, but today is the 29th. We, so we've got, we've got a little bit of time in front of us. We will get it accomplished. We will do so, but I want to hopefully make sure it is beneficial and it is helpful. Um, I, I think right now, if I'm going to continue to use the running illustration, I think right now I'm kind of, I'm in desperate need of a second wind, right? Like right now, I kind of feel like, all right, you know, I, I've done, I've done so much. Yeah. You know, does it, does it even matter if I finish? Like there's a part of me that kind of, you know, you kind of just like, uh, I don't know. I don't know, but I know I'm not supposed to say that, but I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, it's been, it's been, it feels like this summer has lasted a year. We've covered a lot. We've done a lot of work. I just don't, I just feel like maybe that if we were to be brutally honest with ourselves, that many people have fallen to the side and have just not, they're not only have they given up, they're not really interested in finishing strong. And if they're not interested in finishing strong, then you kind of look, then, then you can kind of say, well, then do I want to finish strong? But I'm going to finish strong. To the best of my ability. So I'm, I'm in desperate need of a second win. Hopefully we'll hit that second win soon, you know, because sometimes you need that second win to get you to the end of a marathon. So I hope you are ready. Today it's all about Jeremiah chapter 40 to chapter 52. We're in the final stage. We have that final stage where I guess, what do they say? Runners hit the wall. We're going to hit the wall. Maybe I've already hit the wall, but I'm going to push through, get that second win, and then we're going to sprint. We're, that last 200, 300 yards, we are just going to, we're just going to run as fast as we can and finish as strong as we can. And hopefully when it's over, you'll be able to say a couple of things. You know the book of Jeremiah better than you've ever known it before. Secondly, you have been able to see 
and acknowledge and struggle with some of the deep questions that arise from the study of this book. And you've been able to see some of the major differences and how people's theology greatly impacts their hermeneutic, right? Depending if you're coming up from a more dispensational viewpoint, say more than, uh, than maybe from an amillennial perspective. So we, we've talked about that. We've pointed out those differences over and over and over. Hopefully you've been, you've done a lot of the homework. I haven't given that much, but hopefully you've done a lot, but I am going to start today. We're going to start our run today with a little bit of homework. So if you have your Bible, go back to Jeremiah chapter 39. Yesterday was Jeremiah 31, 31, 31, 31. I told you to find the 15 I wills. I told you to uh, maybe try to read Jeremiah 31 10 times. I think I did the same thing. I, th- I told you to do something I think with Jeremiah 33. So there was a couple of little things I told you to do, but today it's pretty simple, all right? Jeremiah 39, look at verse 15. Jeremiah 39, 15. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison. So Jeremiah is locked up. Jeremiah is locked up. But even though while he is locked up, God's word comes to him. So what would God want to tell Jeremiah while while he's locked up in prison? I mean, hey, he's locked up in prison. Well, I mean, you think God could tell Jeremiah maybe something encouraging, something, but no, look at the, look at the word that comes to him while he's in prison. Look at verse 16. Go and speak to Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian. Now, who is Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian? Now, just saying his name, Ebed Melech. I guess it's cool to say his name, Ebed Melech. I mean, if you're looking for a name for your next child, Ebed Melech may not work. Maybe, maybe for your next pet, Ebed Melech. I don't know if the animal would even respond to that, but it is an interesting name. But I'm more curious, who is Ebed Melech? Oh, we know he's the Ethiopian, but he says, go speak to Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian saying, thus say the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring my word upon this city for evil and not for good, and they shall be accomplished in the day before thee. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be for a prey upon thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. So we need to figure out who Ebed-Melech is. So your 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 small assignment today is... Look up Ebed Melech in a number of Bible dictionaries, commentaries. Um, is he mentioned anywhere else in the book of Jeremiah? Or is this the first time he's mentioned? Find, find at least everywhere he's mentioned in Jeremiah. And then just find out uh, what you can find out about Ebed Melech, who he was, what he did, what, what's going on. Why, why is it so important for God to send this message through Jeremiah to Ebed Melech? That, that's, that's a simple goal. All right. That concludes our, no. Okay. That, that doesn't conclude anything. That just helps us kind of finish up Jeremiah 39. All right. Because remember, we're currently reviewing audio from Dr. J. Vernon McGee through the Bible ministries. They've given us permission to use all of their content any way we want, but we're using this more like we would do a typical sermon review. We're reviewing, critiquing, analyzing, turning it. We're, we're taking what they did and transforming it into something that's uniquely our own. And uh, hopefully it's been beneficial. You're hearing multiple perspectives this way, and I hope you're ready. So there's your there's your homework. Today is all about Ebed Melech. 
I want you to know, I want you to be able to be so confident that you know everything about him that if someone was to walk up to you on the street and said, Ebed Melech, you can say, and I want you to know so Jeremiah 31 so well that you could answer any questions about that as well. All right. So there you go. Are you ready? Okay. All right. I think I'm, I, I'm stretching. Okay. I got, I got some water here. I got, I got some water. Do I need to take a drink? I'm going to take a drink. All right. I got my water. I'm ready to go. I'm stretched. I think so. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, the final stages of the first ever Jeremiah Marathon, we begin that stage right now. Now he's in the land, and we have here, beginning with chapter 40 through 42, Jeremiah speaking to those, the remnant that's left in the land after the destruction of Jerusalem. The very poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, and that crowd were left. In fact, almost another group that would be called a criminal element would be left. And they were a pretty hard group. Now, Jeremiah chose to stay with that group. Now, he has a message for them. Now, beginning of chapter 40 through 42, we have his message to the remnant that remains in the land. Now, we have in chapter 40, I begin reading at verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. After that, Nebuchadnezzar Adan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he had taken him being bound in chains among all that were carried away captive of Jerusalem and Judah, which were carried away captive unto Babylon. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said unto him, The Lord thy God hath pronounced this evil upon this place. Now the Lord hath brought it and done according as he hath said, because ye have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed his voice. Therefore this thing has come upon you. And now, behold, I loose thee this day from the chains which were upon thine hand. If it seem good unto thee to come with me into Babylon, come, and I will look well unto thee. But if it seem ill unto thee to come with me unto Babylon, forbear. Behold, all the land is before thee, whether it seemeth good and convenient for thee to go, thither go. Now, this man, Nebuchadnezzar, gives them full liberty. Now, you can see what would have happened to these people. There was no return for them. They had to go into captivity. If they had obeyed God and gone willingly, they would have got treatment like this and probably would have been permitted to stay in the land, which I'm confident that they would have been permitted to stay in the land. Now, we find that that going back to, I think it was chapter 21, it's just so amazing that this sometimes is so overlooked in the book of Jeremiah. The way the whole thing was supposed to work is don't stay, don't fight, don't rebel, don't seek help from another nation to fight, don't fight, don't rebel, don't seek to overthrow, just leave the city, go out and surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. And if they would have Dr. J. Vernon McGee is convinced not only what things would have gone very well for them, there's a high probability they would have been able even to stay in the land if they would have just submitted 
if they would have just submitted. But we, we, American Christianity would be never, no, I'm not submitting to this ungodly government. I'm not going to submit. Well, in this particular case, I'm not saying it's a direct, I'm not saying it's prescriptive. I know it's primarily descriptive, but I know when I open the New Testament, what do I see? Submit yourself, submit yourself, obey, submit, obey. And you say, but, 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 but in the book of Acts, they didn't obey, they didn't submit. Yeah, and they were not submitting to religious leaders, and those religious leaders were telling them not to preach in the name of Jesus. By all means, if religious leaders are telling you not to preach in the name of Jesus, by all means, disobey those religious leaders, okay? That I, we always seem to forget that in Acts, I think at Acts chapter 5, I think, or Acts 15. Um, so and we've already talked about that. But I just think it's 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 so like... Even the way Nebuchadnezzar treats Jeremiah is so radically different than the way his own people were treating him. But it seems like if they would have just went out and submit like they were told to and not to stay within, things would have gone much better. It's just, it's just, uh, the whole thing is just interesting the way it plays out from 21. When you go to 21, and I think that's where you first hear that. And then here we are in 40, and we're starting to see it being played out in real time. This man, Jeremiah, gives prophecies here to the people that remain in the land. In fact, one of the leaders that was raised up by Nebuchadnezzar, he was a son of Ishmael, and that's quite interesting. This one was named Ishmael. In chapter 41, verse 3, Ishmael also slew all the Jews that were with him, even with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldeans that were found there, and the men of war. This man attempted, you see, to take over. And he's an Ishmaelite, which, by the way, is quite interesting. He's treacherous, a leader, by the way. In chapter 42, Jeremiah has a word now for them under these strange circumstances. What will a remnant do? Are they going to stay there or Shall they leave the land? And where would they go? Actually, the thing that is happening, the captain, and I think I should begin reading probably verse 1, chapter 42, then all the captains of the forces, and Johanan, the son of Korea, and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least, even unto the greatest, came near and said unto Jeremiah the prophet, Let we beseech thee, our supplication be accepted before thee, and pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant, for we are left but a few of many, as thine eyes do behold us, that the Lord thy God may show us the way wherein we may walk, and the thing that we may do. Now, this all sounds very nice, does it not? You'd think these people are actually going to walk with God. And they promise here to obey the voice of the Lord. Let's listen to them now what the voice of the Lord is. Verse 4, Then Jeremiah the prophet said unto them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray unto the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall come to pass that whatsoever thing the Lord shall answer you, I will declare it unto you. I will keep nothing back from you. And believe me, they could depend on Jeremiah speaking the truth, saying the thing that he should say. 
a preacher today, in my judgment, who's attempting to speak for God, whether he's in the pulpit or on radio or wherever he might be. It might be on a soapbox on some corner. If he's going to represent God and speak God's Word, he should lay aside all of this matter of being clever, of being subtle, being sophisticated, and saying smooth words that please people, and of attempting to say the thing that people want to hear and have a little of the power of positive thinking and of positive speaking in. Don't be negative, that type of thing. When the pulpit becomes like that, it becomes weak. It becomes a sounding board to just say back to the people what they want to hear. It's a question of what Paul said to this man Timothy in his swan song, that they will keep to themselves teachers with itching ears. The teachers will have itching ears, and the people will. And it's a question of the old Egyptian game. You scratch my back, I scratch your back, and we both will have a good laugh. The thing is that that is the way the modern pulpit is today. Now, there's so much we could we could say here. We could talk forever about this. I just know I will keep nothing back from you. I will keep nothing back. Jeremiah's like, I'm not going to keep, I'm going to tell you exactly what I hear. And that's what a preacher should do. And, and, and listen, I think that this manifested in a, in a couple of ways. I know uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee focused more on, you know, you can't just get up there and tell the people what they want to hear. I, now look, ever, I think everyone's like, amen. I want a preacher to tell me exactly the way it is. I want a preacher to preach the word of God until you don't. See, I, to me, it's all such a game. Everyone says that's what they want. Until they hear what they don't like or until, and hear, until they hear what they disagree with. Then all of a sudden it's like, well, then you're not preaching. I disagree with you. You're not preaching the, the word of God. Then I'm just going to leave. It's like, it's such a game to me. Everyone's like, preach the word. Don't hold anything back. Come on, give it. And then as soon as you don't like it, then you're like, peace out, God. Okay, well, then you don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear it. As I, I, I'm going to continue to say this. Maybe I'm jaded. Maybe I'm just tired of it. But so much of the church is just a big game. Everyone says they want the word of God, but what they want is they want a, they want the pastor to represent their team and just regurgitate their team's talking points. That's what they want. If your team reformed, you just want to hear reform things. If your team non-reformed, you want to hear, if your team dispensational and nobody can just say, you know what? I don't care about teams. We're going to figure out the text. And guess what? Sometimes this text may support our team. Sometimes the text may go against our team and we're going to deal with the difficulties and we're going to put forth theological hypotheses and we're going to work through it. And we're going to be willing to face the difficult problems and questions that the text arises. And we're not, and I don't care about the team. But what, as much as I say that, I don't think people really catch on how much that's ingrained into them. Everyone will say amen to some of the things I say, but then they will eat, they will go to a church that literally is all about a team. And the church will never question that team because you can't. You can't. You'll get a full blown revolt. People are committed to a system. I don't think they're committed to Scripture. Because Scripture doesn't always fit so nice and neat into a system. 
Scripture, in many cases, makes it uncomfortable. There are times, look, if you're not going to hold anything back as a preacher, then there's going to be times, like even in the book of Jeremiah, I have done that. I'm like, look, this makes absolutely no sense. I don't understand this for one bit. I don't understand. Hey, listen to the prophets. Wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. Don't listen to the prophets. Wait a minute. Hey, God's the one in charge. Okay, well, God is the one in charge. Can he fix the situation? Well, God can't fix this. Uh, there's just so many issues in Jeremiah that we've mentioned that are just philosophically disturbing and, and, and not satisfying. And I have not in any way, shape, or form tried to hold back those difficulties. And, and every time I try to express those difficulties, in many cases, Christians get very defensive because they don't want to hear the difficulties. They just want to make it simple. They want it, they want it nice, simple, Give me my point, three points. Give me a nice little sermon and let's have a lot of, you know, activities in the church, fun, food, fellowship. And, and let's just, let's not worry about too much, but then you're holding something back. But I just think that a lot of it, it, it when people hear like Dr. J. Vernon McGee saying that, oh, they're going to have here, you know, the people are not going to want sound doctrine and they're going to find teachers to them that basically will just scratch their ears. They're going to have itching ears and they're going to hear what they want to, they want teachers to tell them what they want to hear and everybody will be like, amen. I can't stand when pastors do that. I can't stand when churches do that. Everyone seems to talk a big game. And then guess what happens? As soon as the pastor says something they don't like, what do they do, ladies and gentlemen? They get mad. And almost without fail, they leave. And where do they go? They go to a church that says exactly what they want to hear. I mean, like, I don't understand how Christians, it's, it's such, to me, it's like little kids talking all big, like pretending, pretending to be grownups. And then when the reality of being a grownup hits, they're like, okay, no, I want to be a kid again. No, 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 I don't want responsibility. No, no, no I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to pay the bill. No, I just want to be a kid. But it's fun to pretend sometimes. Well, I think Christians love to pretend sometimes that we, I want the word of God. I don't want it censored. I want the pastor to hold nothing back. I want him to give me everything. I want him to throw out the difficult questions. I want him to look at the text. I want him to question things until you don't want it. And then when you don't want it, you leave. When you don't like it, you stop listening to the podcast. When you don't like it, you send angry emails condemning the podcaster because you didn't like it. Because in reality, no matter, no matter how much we can convince ourselves this is what we want, we all want to hear what we want to hear. Now, we always disguise it as, no, 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 I'm just standing for doctrinal truth. You're standing for the doctrinal truth you think is true, but I thought you wanted the preacher to hold nothing back. Maybe if he doesn't hold anything back, it's not going to fit so nicely into your doctrinal system. All right, let, let, let's just get, there's, 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 there's about another, I mean, that's about a four hour podcast right there, but we, we will, we will let Dr. J. Vernon McGee go where he wants to go here. It's the reason it's become extremely weak and has no message for this hour in which we live. Now, when the pulpit can give the impression and let it be known, they're not holding anything back. They're telling what God has to say. Then, my friend, I think that the Word of God will become effective again. It can't become effective today when it is given out in the manner in which it is given out. 
Now, will you listen to this man, Jeremiah? Verse 5, now, chapter 42. Then they said to Jeremiah, The Lord be a true and faithful witness between us, if we do not even according to all things for the which the Lord thy God shall send thee to us. Whether it be good or whether it be evil, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send thee. And it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And so he delivered the message to them. He said to the leader, he called him in first, verse 10, he says, "...if ye will still abide in this land, then will I build you and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I repent me of the evil that I've done unto you." God says, I'll not continue to judge you, but I want to bless you. After all, judgment is a strange work. God wants to bless Now he says, "...be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom ye are afraid. Be ye not afraid of him, saith the Lord, for I am with you to save you, to deliver you from his hand." That was a good word. And you'd think by now that Jeremiah's word having been proven true, that they would believe God. But do they believe God? Now will you notice? And here is the warning he gives, verse 18. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as mine anger and my fury hath been poured forth upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so shall my fury be poured forth upon you when ye shall enter into Egypt, and ye shall be an execration and an astonishment and a curse and a reproach, and ye shall see this place no more. The Lord hath said concerning you, O ye remnant of Judah, Go ye not into Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day. For ye dissembled in your hearts when ye sent me unto the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us unto the Lord our God, and according to all that the Lord our God shall say, so declare unto us, and we'll do it. And actually the people have learned nothing. They have learned nothing from experience. And now they disobey God. They'll not hear. The remnant will not hear Jeremiah nor obey him. So what do they do? Well, God says, don't go down into Egypt. You know where they're going? They're going to Egypt. So now, beginning here with chapter 43 and through actually the rest of this book, we have prophecies during Jeremiah's last days in Egypt where he was taken See, they forced him to go. Now, just it's just important to remember this. They're still, I mean, even all the way up to 42, people are still disobeying. People are still not listening. I'm telling you, anytime the people have to do something, anytime the people are told, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, they fail, they fail, they fail, they fail. Their only hope is not in what they can or cannot do. Their only hope is what God will do when he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. That's why Jeremiah 31 is so important because the rest of the book is, hey guys, you do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And they fail, they fail, they fail. Until God says, I will, I will do this, I will fix it. Now the issue is, well, if God is going to be the one who has to ultimately fix it, why didn't he fix it? earlier. Well, that's always the issue, right? That's always the issue. But the point is, 
our hope can never be in what we do or will not do because we fail continually. The only hope is in what God will do. And that's, well, ultimately, you know, Jesus Christ, who keeps all the law for us. And then his obedience and righteousness is imputed to our account by faith alone. Right. So he's going through some of these chapters really fast. I know he's flying through some of these chapters. We will make up for some of this. We'll fill in some of these gaps. We still got plenty of time to do some, some work on some of this. So we're, we're, we're going to, I mean, Jeremiah all the way till midnight on the last day of August. So we, uh, I know we're going through some of this, but trust me, we'll back up. We may do some other sermon reviews. We, we may do some other additional studies. We may, we, we will, I'm going to do my very best to try to make sure that we, 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 I'll make sure if there's anything you, that you feel you're lacking or you don't understand or some sections you want me to cover in depth. All you have to do is email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, and we will make sure we're going to do everything in our power to, to make sure anything that he's going over too fast, we will back up and, and cover. I'm trying not to go back and just, I'm trying not to. I'm trying to let him move forward because I want us to at least get done with his portion and then we'll get, give ourselves some extra time to do our own thing. All right. So let's, let's, uh, let's see where he goes. Now we see the remnant going into Egypt here in chapters 43 and 44. Will you notice it? In verse 1 of chapter 43, it came to pass that when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking unto all the people, all the words of the Lord, their God, for which the Lord their God had sent him to them, even all these words, then spake Azariah the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan the son of Korea, and all the proud men saying unto Jeremiah, Thou speakest falsely. The Lord our God hath not sent thee to say, Go not into Egypt to sojourn there. Now, their whole point here is, God hasn't sent you to say that. In other words, he's not saying what they want him to say. They had hoped he'd say, go into Egypt. That's what God wants you to do. But God says, don't go into Egypt. We're seeing a theme emerge here. Hey, at some point, the people are like, okay, we'll listen to you. Tell us what to do. And then when he tells them what to do or what not to do, they're like, no, God didn't tell you that. And again, that's, that to me is the whole, that's the way it works over and over in the church. The people are like, preach to me the word of God. Teach me until they hear something they don't like. And then they're like, don't teach me. No, God didn't say that. No, you are wrong. Your interpretation is wrong. My interpretation is right. And I'm not going to listen to you. Everyone wants to hear until they don't want to hear. And we see this throughout the book of Jeremiah. The people constantly rejected Jeremiah, constant. And there was always other people saying what the people wanted to hear. So who did the people listen to? Do I listen to the person telling me something I don't want to hear or do I listen to the, and so what do they do? And, it, and I'm using our, use it, placing it in the, uh, the, the language of our times. They just chose a different church. That church of Jeremiah? No, nobody went to the church of Jeremiah. Nobody, nobody went to his church. His congregation was him. It was zero. There was no one sitting in the pews. And everybody went to the other churches. And they heard what they wanted to hear. Even though it was all false. And when they think they want to listen to Jeremiah, as soon as he gives them a different message, then they don't. 
How many times when you disagree, could it be that you're the one who's wrong? Why is it that Christians who disagree with someone, they always think that they're in the right? I mean, that, that's one of the most, uh, to me, the, the, one of the most troubling things throughout the whole book of Jeremiah. And I, I love these concepts that really, they, they cover the whole book as this ongoing, like Jeremiah preaches, the people don't want it. Jeremiah preaches, the people don't want it. However, there's, there's these other preachers that the people listen to. There's, so you've got which preacher is telling the truth? Which one is right? Well, clearly it's not the one with everyone listening to. They were in the wrong. It wasn't the ones that were in the majority. They were in the wrong. But we all, everyone thinks we are right. Everyone thinks our interpretation is right. And we always think everyone else's interpretation is wrong. And it should at least always cause us to pause and stop and go, well, wait a minute. How, how do we do this? How, how, because it's, if it was maddening for those people, right? Because they didn't have a Bible. It's maddening for us in 2023 where everyone has a Bible. Everyone has all the reference tools. And yet we still can't come to any agreements. Do we really want to hear the word of God? I mean, I think it really comes. Do we really want to hear the word of God? I think we say we do, but we only want to hear what we want to hear. And when we don't want to hear it, we'll go somewhere else to hear exactly what we wanted to hear. I, I, uh, in some ways, the book of Jeremiah so, so highlights this that it only adds to my being so jaded and just so like, it's all such a game. It's all such a game. And, 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 and I, I don't, and, and it bothers me greatly. Now in verse five, but Johanan, the son of Korea and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah that were returned from all nations, whether they'd been driven to dwell in the land of Judah. Now he takes everybody, and we are told here that he took also Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. So they came into the land of Egypt, for they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. Thus came they even to Toponese. And this place, by the way, is right near where they had been at the very beginning when they became a nation in the land of Goshen. Now, Jeremiah is still speaking to them. They force him to go to Egypt. And now the Lord tells him, Take great stones in thine hands and hide them in the clay in a brick kiln. Stop, 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 stop. Okay. Now they go down to Toponese, right? Toponese. That's Jeremiah 43, 8. And he says that, that they go all the way back to where they kind of became a nation and the land of Goshen. Okay, I'm going to look at here. I'm going to look at my study Bible. This is maybe something we want to uh, work on a little bit here. I'm going to see if I have a good note here. Uh, 
See, does my Bible have anything? Okay, it says here, these verses are booked in 40, uh, chapter 43, 4 through 7. These verses are booked in in a paragraph that has at its beginning and the end of the words, they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. This rebellious group arrived in Egypt at Tephanes, Tephanes, a fortified city on the northern border of the lower of lower Egypt, where one of Pharaoh's palaces were situated. Ironically, the remnant of Jews fled back to the land they had escaped from about 900 years earlier. And this is somewhat kind of prophetic or, or somewhat, maybe it's ironic, maybe it's poetic. I don't know how you want to describe it. Israel over and over and over after they were delivered from their bondage constantly kept saying, let's go back to Egypt or not constantly. Numerous times they said, let us return unto Egypt. Let us return unto Egypt. Let us return unto Egypt. I don't know exactly how many times, but it was as it was a constant temptation. Later on, there were times they wanted to make an alliance with Egypt. And in here, they actually return to Egypt. The remnant returns to Egypt. Instead of obeying God, they go back in a sense back to their captivity, back to the land of where they were, that their, their, their forefathers were held captive for all of those years. It's, it's, it's just like, what in the world are they doing? What in the world are they doing? It once again shows man's sinful nature. That, that our sinful nature, in a sense, will always return, always wants to go back. God says, go this way, and we will always want to go back. There's always something in us that will want to return. It's just inevitable. That's why our salvation has to be based on something other than what we do. All right, let, let's, let's continue. Verse 9. And back down in the brickyards of Egypt, they're not getting anywhere fast, as you can see, which is at the entry of Pharaoh's house in Toponese in the sight of the men of Judah. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne upon these stones that I've hid, and he shall spread his royal pavilion over them." And when he cometh, he shall smite the land of Egypt and deliver such as were of death to death and such as were for captivity to captivity and such as are for the sword to the sword. Now, the interesting thing here is they ran off to the land of Egypt to escape Nebuchadnezzar. But God is going to permit Nebuchadnezzar to take the land of Egypt, which he did. And these people are right back under Nebuchadnezzar, only this time he doesn't leave them in the land. He puts them into slavery. And so this is the message that he gives to Israel in Egypt. Now, chapter 44, and I'm just going to hit high places here. Verse 16, "...as for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee." So what you have here is a total rejection of Jeremiah. The remnant refused to believe Jeremiah. They won't accept him at all. And we have here, Jeremiah warns them that Nebuchadnezzar is going to take this land now and will take these people, and yet they still refuse. Now, the remnant in Egypt refused to hear the word of the Lord. And so there's nothing left for them but judgment and we'll see that we have now a series of prophecies against the nations 
roundabout that were literally fulfilled. We'll see fulfilled prophecy when we get there. Now, friends, as we've come to the 45th chapter here, we are now in actually a section where there are prophecies that are given concerning the different nations round about. Because you see, the remnant that was left in that land, and they were not the, shall I be very frank and say, they were not the best people. You have to hand it to Nebuchadnezzar. He took the best with him into captivity. He wasn't going to take the second grade or the lower type individuals. He wanted those that would make a contribution to his empire, and he took them with him. And these others, he left. And Jeremiah was left with him. And also, a friend of Jeremiah... And in chapter 45, it's a brief chapter, but it's a prophecy given to a friend of Jeremiah, Baruch. Baruch was sort of a friend that acted as an assistant to Jeremiah. He was the one that copied down the scroll that was sent over to the king. And the king, you remember, took a penknife and tore it apart and pitched it in the fireplace and let it be burned. And when this man Jeremiah was in jail and he bought property, it was Baruch that carried out the transaction for him, had the papers signed and carried through all of the paperwork that had to be done. And now when this man Jeremiah was arrested and escaped, Baruch escaped with him. And when they were taken down into Egypt by this little group why Baruch was taken down there. Now, this prophecy actually was given by Jeremiah to Baruch during the reign of Jehoiakim. And you can see these are not reigns chronologically. That's the reason we said at the beginning, although there is a certain semblance of chronological order in the book of Jeremiah, yet here is an evidence and an instance of the fact that it's actually not arranged chronologically because... Cannot stress that enough. Uh, the fact that it's not in chronological order at times is maddening. You heard that a little bit from the pulpit uh, at Victory Baptist Church when we were talking about how, wait, don't listen to the prophets. No, no, go listen to the prophets. Well, wait a minute. That makes no sense. And then someone pointed out, we think that that was out of chronological order. Now, even if it's out of chronological order, you just reverse the problem. Hey, don't listen to the prophets. Now, now, now listen to the prophets. Okay. Or, or, hey, listen to the prophets. Now don't listen to the prophets. Whether one comes before the other, it's still the same type of problem. But whenever things are out of chronological order, it's very hard because when you're reading through the book and you're trying to understand it, right? You're trying to, you're trying to gain the insight from it. It's hard to start to, to say, okay, wait a minute. I'm going to spend six months trying to put at this in some kind of order. Then, then, then go try to do the other. No, you're trying to interpret it, but you try to also maintain trying to remember uh, putting it in chronological order. I, it would be interesting. I haven't looked at a chronological Bible. I don't have mine with me. I think it's at the church. I wonder if chronological Bibles put Jeremiah in chronological order. That would be interesting. Um, I don't, I, I think it's called the Rhesus Chronological Bible. I do not have it. 
Uh, but if you have it, you should ver- you should check to see how does it structure the book of Jeremiah? Does it put some chapters before other chapters? Does it put some chapters after? Like, how does it, how does it structure it? Because if it put places it in a more, uh, a better chronological order, if I was to ever teach the book of Jeremiah again, I probably should have thought about that in the first place. I, I probably should have used a chronological Bible if they put it in chronological order and, and then go, but I don't know if there's agreement in some cases. I think in some cases there is not agreement. Like you could get probably 10 people together and go, no, 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 that chapter goes here. No, 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 that chapter goes here. And if there's no agreement, well, then that would be frustrating. But if there is at least some semblance of agreement and say multiple chronological Bibles do put these like, no, this chapter comes here. No, this chapter comes here. It would be interesting to teach it that way and not in the order that we have in our, our, our Bibles. I think it could, I think, I don't know how much it would impact our interpretation, but it may create a whole different feel and a whole different, you may get a whole different impression. So it would be interesting to at least read it that way. Because this goes back to the reign of Jehoiakim. That was some time ago. And it was given though to him, and I think brought up at this time, to be an encouragement to him because of what was going to happen to him as he identified himself with Jeremiah the prophet. Now, here is the prophecy, and I'll begin reading in verse 2 of chapter 45. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto thee, O Baruch, thou didst say, Woe is me now, for the Lord hath added grief to my sorrow, I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. Now, things were bad during the reign of Jehoiakim, but it was nothing what was going to follow. The real bad time was coming later. So that Jeremiah gives him this prophecy at that time to encourage him. And here it is. Thus shalt thou say unto him. This is verse 4 now of chapter 45. The Lord saith thus, Behold, that which I have built will I break down, and that which I planted I will pluck up even this whole land. And he wanted Baruch to know that what was happening there, God was the one who was responsible for it. And he assumed full responsibility. Now, that's, that's an interesting question, all right? Hey, Baruch, I want you to know everything happening, God is in charge. Now, so let's, let's, let's remove it from Baruch. Let's remove it from this situation. And let's, let's think about this in a different perspective. I want you to think about your life. If horrible things come into your life, if you know God is directing it, God is the one controlling it. Does it make it easier for you or does it make it harder for you? Do you find great comfort knowing, well, I went through all of that. God was involved. God was controlling it. God was in charge. God was there. Or does it make you more, well, if God was there, then why did it happen? Like, does it help you or does it make it worse? I don't know for me. Like, if I look back in my life, I've gone through some pretty messed up stuff. I don't know if it makes it makes it any better to say, well, God was involved in it because because there's times I'd be like, well, God, you could have, you know, I don't know. What would my life have looked like if I could have avoided 
uh, so many issues. I mean, even when it comes to your own sin, I mean, we've talked about it before. There seems times in the Bible, God seems to step in almost to stop something from happening. And then there's other times God kind of just kind of fades to the background going, go ahead and commit the sin. And then boom, now I'm going to punish you. Like it, it, it seems like sometimes it's confusing. Like, I don't know if it brings great comfort to me or if it brings great, great, great mental anguish. I don't know. Hey, Baruch, just know God's going to be, God's the one involved in all of this. So it's going to get bad. It's going to be horrible. But hey, God's the one doing it. Is that, is that comforting? I don't know. I don't know. Is it supposed to be comforting? Or is it, maybe it's comforting knowing that I'm just not a victim of mindless circumstance. Maybe it lets me know that I'm just not the victim of chance, that it's just like, oh, well, bad luck. I mean, look, bad things are going to happen to people. So either you believe they're just, that's just the way the cards were dealt for you, or you believe that there's a God who somehow had a purpose and plan in it. I don't know if that makes me feel any better. I get, I, I probably depends on what you went through. Right. I, I can imagine if you go through some things, it would make it horrible to consider that God was involved or God watched and God didn't do anything about it. And there's be other circumstances. You're like, OK, well, all right. Yeah. See, God, God did that for my ultimately for my good. All right. I, I appreciate it. I, I think it all depends on what it what it was that you went through. I don't know. You, you can draw your own conclusions there. Therefore, Baruch can go along with the program. Verse 5, And seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. For behold, I'll bring evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord, for thy life will I give unto thee for a prey in all places where thou goest. I think what he's doing is making clear to Baruch, a young man, you can't expect at this period in the history of this nation to arrive at some high goal yourself. This is a troubled time, and if you come through it with your life, and God says here that he intends to bring this man through it all. This evidently was a great encouragement to Baruch, the associate and friend of Jeremiah. Now, these men have been taken down into Egypt, actually against their will. At the same time, you'll recall that Jeremiah was warning them not to go down there, that they were making a big mistake. And so Jeremiah actually just read their minds, for this was the thing that was in their mind. And I want to drop back to chapter 42 and pick this up. Verse 13, "...but if ye say, We will not dwell in this land, neither obey the voice of the Lord our God. Now, that's exactly what they said, and that's the reason they went off to the land of Egypt. But now here was their thinking, and Jeremiah just brings it right out in the open and lets you look at it, saying, No, but we will go into the land of Egypt, where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor have hunger of bread, and there will we dwell. Now, this is the thing that they intend to do. We're going to Egypt, 
and they give two reasons of why they're going there. Well, they were going there because they could attain their desires, the thing that they wanted, the ambition of their life. And what was that? Well, two things. We can go there because we can have bread. We can get something to eat. And then we can also be in a place where there can be peace. And we are going there in order that we might have the supreme desire of our heart. That is, we want ease. We want bread. And they had a degenerated desire. They were lusting after this. That was the result of the disintegration and the deterioration and the dissolution of the nation, Israel, of which they was a part. And they wanted peace at any price except the price of war and hunger. Now, I've attempted to draw out of this book on two or three occasions the great principles that are illustrated here. And I have warned you before that the thing about Jeremiah that disturbs me is I know that I'm missing something. I don't quite get it all. I don't quite understand it all. I'm a little disturbed with a great many folk today, a great many Christians. They act to me like they really have all the truth. They don't need to know any more. And the closer I get to those folk, the less I find that they know. And that disturbs me. Because today, there's so much in the Word of God that we need to lay hold of. Now, the thing these people wanted to get away from, and this is something that's very pertinent for us in this hour, they wanted peace at any price, except at the price of war and hunger. They wanted to maintain a position of resistance, but they didn't want to resist, if you know what I mean. If they might go to a place where they no longer hear the trumpet of war, no longer have to fight, and they might have all the fullness of bread, well, that's all they desire. That's their ambition. That's what life holds for them, and that's it. I would change this up a little bit. A couple of things. I think it's awesome that even he admits, I feel like I just, I mean, I don't know, you know, obviously he's going through this at a high rate of speed, right? So, and he can't articulate on everything, but there's little statements he makes that I can go, man, I, I, I know what you're talking about, Dr. J. Vernon, because there's so much in here that you feel like, man, I think we're missing something. I think, I don't know if I can get it. And I'm disturbed. I think the book of Jeremiah should disturb you at times. It, at times it makes no sense. I think we should all be willing to acknowledge that. Now, the only thing I would, I, I beg to differ a little bit with him is this. It's not that these people, these people resisted God because remember the whole solution for them was to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. That was the thing. In a sense, they did resist. They did fight in a sense that they resisted and they looked for solutions and they went to, they wanted to go to, they went down to Egypt. That the whole problem wasn't that they resisted, that they wouldn't resist. 
The whole problem is they wouldn't submit. The issue with them is they would not submit. And I think that that's what's so pertinent in our day and age because the American Christian mindset is we must fight. We must stand. We must, now we must fight and stand against maybe sin, but we've turned it into we're going to fight the government. We're going to fight a political party. We're not going to submit. And, and people threw it. I mean, look at what happened during the pandemic. All of a sudden, Romans 13 took on new interpretations that I had never heard in my entire Christian life until the pandemic. And then all of a sudden we're like, no, 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 no. That doesn't mean submit now. And then we twisted it. Why? Because we're not going to go with Nebuchadnezzar. We're not going to listen. We're going to Egypt. We're going to, we're going to be a, 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 a group of people who are going to fight the power to quote public enemy. Okay. What, where, where, you get the idea. I think the whole problem is, is they would not submit. Because God's ways did not make any sense. You want me to submit to Nebuchadnezzar? You want me to submit to the Chaldeans? You want me to submit to the Babylonians? You want me to submit? No! And well, they suffer because they wouldn't. They wouldn't just surrender. They wouldn't just submit. May I say that, unfortunately... In our nation, there were many boys who apparently were taught a wrong philosophy of life and a philosophy like this, and they crossed over the border into Canada. They didn't want to go to war, and they wanted it easy. Oh, man. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Now, there we, we may have. See, it's just amazing how people can take Scripture and do anything. He sees this Scripture. He sees everything going on in Jeremiah, and he thinks it applies to the people, you know, who decided to not go to Vietnam and fled to Canada. Now, you could argue, well, wait a minute, they were submit to, to the government that was calling them to war. You You could argue that, right? So, that, should they have submitted? I guess you could apply it that way. Is it applicable to that? Hey, I'm not going to Vietnam. Now that comes down to, well, was the war just? Was the war not just? But wait a minute. Does it matter if it was just or not just? Or do you surrender to your government and submit to your government? See, this, this had, these had, these issues, these theological things, these biblical truths have massive practical implications upon your life. And how you apply this. And the problem is we can apply them when that we, when it goes with our thinking and then we can reject them when they don't go with our thinking. It's very difficult. He sees dodging the draft to go to Canada as them not going, following, you know, going to, to Nebuchadnezzar versus them go fleeing down to Egypt. Do you think that parallel works? Well, you, you could argue it's not submitting. It's not submitting. It's not submitting. But then are you to submit if you believe what the government is doing is wrong and, and evil? I mean, do you believe Vietnam was a just war? And then that gets down to what do you believe about just war doctrine? And so it, then it comes right back to when can you disobey? See, we're right back to that. These have these, in other words, these things are complicated and multi-layered, and it always leads to so many issues. Now, I think it's different submitting to things where you're trying not to do harm, 
right? Versus submitting to something where you're supposed to now take a gun and go kill people. I do believe there's a difference there, but the principles still are, are those you have to struggle with. See, so this is why theology and the Bible, it's why we have to make sure we have a good grasp to it because it usually has profound impact on what we do in our lives and how we're, what we're going to do and how we're going to think about things. We got to make sure we're thinking correctly. And that is the thing that a great many today still want. Well, may I say to you that this is something that we need to consider. And I, right now, ask you to follow me very carefully. And I don't want to be misunderstood, and yet I recognize I can be misunderstood here. I'm opposed to war. I'm not for war. I'm against it. But William James put it like this years ago, that what we supremely need in the life of our nation today is the moral equivalent of war. Now, I'm not defending war, but I do insist that we need today a heroic attitude of our entire soul our entire being and our life that stands for right, even though it may eventuate in war, rather than for that weak and beggarly and cowardly attitude which to avert war will stoop to any iniquity or compromise. Now, here is something that began back in World War One or after it. We must be ready for war in the interest of peace, and that we fought World War I to make the world safe for democracy, and World War II the same way. And we've been given the same old propaganda that today we're going to have peace in the world, and everything must be bent in that direction. May I say this to you, that I believe that this idea that we must be ready for war in order that we might have peace, and that that is the reason we should fight, is in order that we might have peace. I say to you, and I want to say it carefully now, that's a philosophy that comes out of the pit of hell. (laughs) I do not think that's the position of a child of God. The important thing is that We should rest upon decisions and take a stand, not on whether it's going to be peace or war, but a question of standing for that which is right, that which is truth, and that which reveals love. If war comes, then we may expect that God will be not on the side of the big battalions, as Napoleon put it, but on the side of truth and justice and righteousness and that today which is right, I say to you that that's the position that we ought to have today. And any other position, we surrender today our nation. That, I believe, is the important thing. It was Robert William Dale back in World War I He was asked the question, do you believe in peace at any price? And he said, I certainly do, sometimes 
at the price of war. I hope I'm not misunderstood in giving that. I think that's a profound statement, and I think it can be misunderstood. But when a nation has dropped down to the low level of perpetual panic, lest they should go to war and will stoop to make any kind of a peace treaty, may I say to you, that's the day that that nation is doomed. That's the thing that put us in World War I. We never learned. And that is what put us in World War II. We never learned. We went to Vietnam because we didn't learn. And today we have not learned that we should stand for that which is true. We also have to add, sometimes we go to war for that which isn't true and right. You can seek peace at the expense of what is true and right, but you can go to war at the expense of what is true and right. It's not always so easy. It's not always so right. And it's not so, so it's weird that he has decided to go in this direction with this. Obviously, there was something greatly bothering him. And that's always the danger as a preacher. When something is bothering you, 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 you find a way to put it into the text. I don't know if this is the right way to handle chapter 45 and 46 and these chapters. I do understand the people decided, Hey, we, we're going to Egypt because we don't want the fighting. We don't want the war. But remember, they were told to go by God directly to Nebuchadnezzar. So I I don't know if this is in our situations. We don't have direct revelation coming from God telling us what to do. We got biblical principles. That's all we have. They had the direct word of God speaking directly to their specific situation and we don't have that. We have scripture that we have to try to apply to our situations. All right, let, let's see where he goes with this. Let me quote another at this point. Let me quote Dr. G. Calmer Morgan of England. Finally, we come to that which is the most hopeless thing, corruption of conscience. All its fine sensitiveness is gone. There is no high idealism in national outlook and national thought. Or to use the almost terrific word of the Bible, the conscience is hardened so that there is no blanching with fear and no blushing with shame. There is cynicism instead of faith, pessimism instead of hope, and utilitarianism instead of love. Now, he goes on to quote, John Stuart Mill. And it was John Stuart Mill who took that word utilitarianism, and he formed that group of utilitarians in his day. And his definition was those who say that the greatest good of the greatest number is the true secret of all policy. And morality has nothing to do with it. Now, the philosophy today is materialism. What brings in the most money? What helps our economy? That which is totally secular. And in it today, truth does not enter at all 
In fact, truth is almost a heresy, and you dare not bring love into this business affair today. You don't dare bring that in. My friend, may I say to you, when we come to that level, then I think that it's time for us to give up Christianity and say that we're going back to the jungle and it's the law of the one with the sharpest claw and the most deadly fang, that now it's the survival indeed of the fittest. May I say to you, then we have sunk down to a very low level. That was the problem with these folk. Now Jeremiah is going to give them a series of prophecies. Here, the first prophecy is against Egypt, and we've already seen this. God says you've gone down to Egypt because you think you're going to have peace and because you think you'll have plenty. But he says, I have news for you. The war is moving from this place down there because Nebuchadnezzar is going to take Egypt, which he did. Verse 17, "...they did cry there, Pharaoh king of Egypt is but a noise." He is past the time appointed. You can't depend on Pharaoh any longer. Egypt had gone down. And the prophecy he gives here now in verse 19 of chapter 46, O thou daughter dwelling in Egypt, furnish thyself to go into captivity, for Memphis shall be waste and desolate without an inhabitant. You made a big mistake in trusting Egypt instead of trusting the Lord and believing Him and obey Him. Now, you have a marvelous prophecy here in verses 27 and 28. But fear not thou, O my servant Jacob, and be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save thee from afar off, and thy seed from the land of their captivity." And Jacob shall return, and be in rest, and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Verse 28, how anyone that can believe God is through with the nation Israel and say at the same time they believe the Word of God, I don't see how you can read verse 28 and make a statement like that. And maybe that the problem has been they haven't been reading verse 28, so I'm going to read it. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations, whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. I cannot stress the importance of that theologically, you cannot believe God is done with Israel. And he's not done with Israel because he made promises to them because he's going to be their righteousness. And just know, we get the more I wills. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations, whether I have driven thee, but I will make, you say, I will make a full end of the nations, whether I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee. I will go after these other nations, but I am not going to make an end of you. 
Why? Because God made promises with them. He chose them. He elected them. They are his chosen. And God is not done with them, and he will fulfill all the promises he made to them. If you say God is done with Israel, then God's election, God's choosing, God's grace, God's mercy is, of, is not trustworthy. And therefore, you have no hope in yourself. You say, well, they deserve to be done. God, they deserved to be thrown out. And so do you, and so do I. And so does the entire church. God says, I'll punish you, but I'll never make an end of you. So, you take this at face value or not. Now you have prophecies against those surrounding nations that this little remnant left. They began to look to one nation after another. Where should they go? Who should they depend on? And some of these were enemies. But now there's not only a prophecy against Egypt, but against these, against Philistia. The Philistines, Tyre and Sidon, we have a prophecy in chapter 47. In view of the fact we'll be coming to them later, why, I move on. And then you have a prophecy in chapter 48 against Moab. Now, Moab has ceased to be a nation. In verse 42, I read, "...and Moab shall be destroyed from being a people, because he hath magnified himself against the Lord." Now, the Heshemite kingdom of Jordan today on the east bank of the Jordan River occupies the same land that the country of Moab and the people of Moab occupied. And yet God is not through with those people. I don't know where they are today. I doubt whether anyone could locate them. But God could locate them. Verse 47, Yet will I bring again the captivity of Moab in the latter days, saith the Lord, thus far is the judgment of Moab. In other words, there's no use these people fleeing to Moab. They wouldn't get any help there. Now, friends, we have seen that this remnant that went down into Egypt, they made a mistake in going there because they disobeyed God. He told them not to. But it's going to work out not for their good, but actually they are getting right out of the frying pan into the fire. The war is over in Israel. No enemy would want to come in now and take that land because it has been absolutely run over, burned, and nothing in the world but debris, nothing in the world but the ashes of the civilization that was there. So they should have stayed. They could have at least built it up, but they did not. They ran off to Egypt, and that's where the war was moving because Nebuchadnezzar's next campaign was against Egypt, which he took. And when he did, he got these people. That was the second time he captured them, and they suffered. They thought they were running away from war. They thought they were getting down where they would get plenty to eat. And all they were thinking of was their tummy and their safety. Well, when we sink down to that low level and our attitude and our actions and our goals are not based on the fact that we want today to live for God and that God's truth should be our guide, that we should follow him. And when we go from that, then, my friend, we have sunk to a low level 
and it won't bring peace to us, and it won't bring plenty to us either. That has been the experience down through the annals of history. History teaches us that. It's a great lesson. These great principles are in this book here, and we've attempted to lift a few of them out, but i be very frank with you, I feel like I've been standing on the fringe of things here, and I have not really been able to enter into some of the great truths that God has here for us. And as you continue on here in chapter 49, there is a... And we will stop there at chapter 49. That gives us only a couple of chapters to go to finish our marathon. But I want to leave you in this episode with some very important concepts. What is your driving motivation in your life? What do you seek most? Peace? Comfort? Prosperity? Do you seek your own way or do you seek God's word and God's way? What matters most to you? Your way, your will, your prosperity, your peace, your material gain, your happiness, hearing what you want to hear or, or, or listening to God. Now we all say, no, 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 I want to listen to God. We want to listen to God until we don't want to listen to God. We want to listen to God's word until we don't like what it has to say. Then which demonstrates what's the real driving force in your life is what you want to hear, what you think. Your, you, listen, it really is. Is God the driving force in your life or is self? And if we're honest with ourselves, self continually is the driving force. And we know it because as soon as we hear what we don't want to hear, we'll leave that to go hear what we want to hear. They didn't like what they heard, so they went and got sought what they wanted. And well, all they, it did not work out quite the way that they thought. But it's a very important principle. All right, we'll stop right there. Um. I don't even know how much time is left. He's got 49 to 52 to go. Uh, he's moving so quickly that it could be over any minute, but we're at 77 minutes broadcasting. So I think it's time to wrap this up. I don't like leaving that last little part, but we'll leave that last little part. And then we'll, we'll try to fill in some of this, uh, the gaps. I mean, we, we've got plenty of time. We'll finish Dr. J. Vernon McGee and then we'll look and see what else we can do between now and midnight on August the 31st and bring this hopefully study to some kind of dramatic conclusion. Thank you for listening. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Remember all of these hours of content. I mean, just for the Bible study exercise, just for the Bible study exercise podcast series, that's over 500 episodes just in that podcast series alone, uh, just on the, the Church One app, you almost have 3,000 episodes available to you just on that app alone. If you look on some of the other podcasting apps and you put everything that we've done together, you're, you're well over probably 4,000 uh, episodes, all available to you, and it's absolutely free for you to download, for you to stream. You've got apps so that you have 24-7 access to it all. Just remember, it's free for you. It's definitely not free to make it available to you. It costs us money. In fact, you know, I get I get the receipts, you know, all the time for how much money we have to pay to, for this and for this, for this. If you ever would like to help support any of it, I don't care if it's a dollar. I don't care if it's 
Uh, go to theologycentral.net, hit the donate tab, or if you're using the Church One app, hit the give tab, or if you're on, if you're on the Sermons 2.0 app, look up Theology Central, find us, and you can hit the give tab. All money currently goes to Victory Baptist Church located in Ovalo, Texas. Does not come to me. And if that ever changes, I will definitely will let you know. All right. Thanks for listening. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Plenty to think about. May God bless you as you meditate and think on the book of Jeremiah. And we will try to finish this sometime today. God bless.